0: I Turn to Revelation 13, if y'all want to do that, Revelation chapter 13. So last week, we saw the seventh trumpet was sounded, the last in that series. It's a bit anticlimactic, it's just saying, it was just a, a hymn, and that hymn and the message around it is, it's a summary of what's about to happen. So the mystery of God is about to be accomplished, that's what the angel says in chapter 10, when the, seventh, when the seventh trumpet is sounded. And that mystery is how the kingdom of God will be established on the earth. So the rest of the book of Revelation is the working out of that mystery. How exactly will the kingdom of God be established on the earth? And then chapter 12 is a cliff note version of an ongoing battle between Satan and God. So Satan attempts to devour the Messiah, that's Jesus, he's unsuccessful, Satan is evicted from heaven. I said, I think that happens on the first Easter, but you can disagree with me on that. And then Satan, now that he's been kicked out of heaven, is directing all of his rage and fury towards the church, capital C, towards the people of God. Plan A was overthrow the Father. That didn't work. Plan B is wreak as much havoc as he can on the church. And today in chapter 13, we're going to see the two major forces that he uses to persecute the church. So chapter 13, starting in verse 1. The dragon, that Satan, stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who's like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to other proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, and it was given authority over, over every people, Tribe, language, and nation, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. It performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it's the number of a man. The number is 666. Six, six. So that's awesome. <laughs> All the way around. Anybody want to take a shot at that? So here's the way I would understand these. To me, vision, true, but not literal. It's true, but it's not literal. We need to go around and see who's got a mark on their head that looks like they were cut with a sword. That's not the point. The, I, the, the best way to understand, I think, both of these beasts in relationship to Satan, is to think of them as an unholy trinity. So we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, righteous, divine trinity. Dragon, beast out of the sea, beast out of the earth, make up an unholy trinity. The dragon is analogous to the Father, the Father's sovereign. He's directing the affairs of the earth, and the dragon is doing the same thing among his followers. The beast out of the sea is parallel to jesus both of them have received authority jesus from the father the beast from the dragon both of them you see have this idea when jesus was crucified and raised from the dead and this beast from the sea has a it's similar he has a wound on his head that may have been fatal and he's come back and then the beast out of the earth is parallel to the holy spirit the holy spirit guides the followers of jesus into all truth he brings glory to jesus the beast out of the earth guides the inhabitants of the earth into deception, and he brings glory to the beast out of the sea. So to me, the most helpful way to think of these is not trying to figure out exactly what individuals are being referred to, but to think of them, again, as this unholy trinity. This is the way that Satan persecutes the church. This is the way that he's seeking to destroy the church. So just to go ahead and get it out of the way, Mark of the Beast in 666. I don't know. You, you decide. Here's a list of people whose names add up to 666. So you can figure out which one of those guys is the Antichrist. It seems to me that what I would gather is you find somebody you don't like, and we can figure out how to make their name add up to 666. That's called Gematria, G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A. It is a it's an ancient Jewish practice. It assigns each letter of the alphabet a numerical value, and then you add up those values, and you get a number. And again, depending on how you want to do it, you can come up with just about anything that you want to come up with. For me, telling, there's a guy named Irenaeus. He was a, a church father in the 2nd century, and he was discipled by a guy named Polycarp, who was a bishop of Smyrna in the, one of the churches that was written to in Revelation. Polycarp was discipled by John, the guy that wrote this book. So John... Polycarp Irenaeus. Irenaeus is two steps removed from John. He's writing about a hundred years after John's death. And he doesn't know what 666 means. He gave three options. So he didn't even know. And I'm thinking if he was that close and he didn't figure it out, I'm probably not going to figure it out either. And I'm not sure that anybody else is. I don't know that it's super, super important. Mark of the beast. It's not a barcode. So don't worry about that. don't have to worry about somebody implanting a chip in your wrist so you can pay at Kroger. If they're offering that, I would say take it because then you don't have to keep up with your wallet anymore. You're not going to hell because of any of those things. Using a UPC code is not going to send you to hell. That's silly. To me, the whole idea of the mark of the beast, it's a a parallel, again, thinking of this unholy trinity, to what we saw in chapter 7 where God seals his people Before the great tribulation. And that seal, it's not necessarily a stamp on your forehead. It's the Holy Spirit who lives within you. It's a mark of possession and protection. What I see in Revelation is there is no fence, there's no middle ground, there's no gray area. You're either on the side of the lamb or you're on the side of the dragon. You're either on the side of God or you're on the side of Satan. And there is is no other option. There's no Again, fence, no middle ground, no gray area. You're either marked by God as one of his sons and daughters or you're marked by the beast as one of his followers. Those are your only choices. I think that's what's being communicated. And it's, it's not gonna sneak up on you. You're not gonna wake up one day and have the mark of the beast. It's not gonna, it doesn't happen that way. It's a deliberate choice to live in rebellion and hostility to Jesus. That's what marks you. You don't have to be scared about, again, the, some technology that's going to lead you, mark you, and if you use it, you're, you're going to wind up in hell. To me, when I think about both of these beasts, there's some characteristics that jump out and there's some Old Testament background. There's going to be a ton of information on the screen, and I'm not going to read it all. You can take a picture of that or it'll be online. Uh, it's just there for your context. But trying to hit some of the high points. The, the Old Testament context for the beast out of the sea is Daniel 7. So in Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of four beasts. The first is a bear, the second, or excuse me, the first is a lion, the second is a bear, the third is a leopard. And John sees a combination of all of those. And in Daniel seven seventeen, an angel is explaining to Daniel, here's what you saw. And he says, each one of those beasts is a king. And we know kings all lead kingdoms. So both of those realities are important. An individual who leads an empire or a king who leads a kingdom. It's not just about one person. It's about one person and what's behind them. Again, this kingdom or this empire that they're leading. We see also um, from Revelation 13 that the beast out of the sea is empowered by Satan. And that's really, really important. This goes beyond secular. This goes beyond pagan. This is satanic, demonic. This, is, this beast is given, the, is given its authority from Satan. He looks like him, seven heads and ten horns. And we said heads are authority and horns are power and seven is complete and, and ten is a number, it's a, it's a multiplying number. And so you've got a lot of authority and you've got a lot of power that's been given to the dragon that the dragon has then given to this beast from the earth. All of that is under the sovereignty of God. That's one thing we see throughout Revelation. Everything that's happening is happening under the the superintendence and supervision of God. God's created a world where an angel can fall, and that angel can have a lot of authority and power. And he's created a world where a beast, whatever that is, can come up out of the sea and have a lot of authority and have a lot of power. But all of that, again, is under his supervision and ultimate control. So this beast out of the out of the sea, is empowered by Satan. His reign is limited. 42 months. We've seen this time period repeatedly now. 42 months that the beast reigns is the same as the 1,260 days that the church is to be a faithful witness during difficulty. That's chapter 11, the two witnesses. The time of their public ministry. So that's the time of the church being a faithful witness even in the midst of difficulty. That's the same as the 42 months that the beast reigns. That's the same as the time, times and half a time that the dragon pursues the woman in chapter 12. The dragon being Satan and the woman being the church of the people of God. All of those times are correspond to one another. That 42 months is, I think it's any time between Jesus' first coming and second coming where the church with a capital C is being persecuted. So there, there, there are church communities right now, not individuals, not local congregations, but think of like the church in a city, the church in Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia, the church in Laodicea that we read about in the beginning of Revelation, or the, the church in Corinth, you read those letters in the New Testament. The church in one of those localities being persecuted, they're experiencing their 42 months. And there are other churches that aren't. And it very well could be that at the end of time before Jesus returns, that that, 40, that that persecution and squeezing of the church is more widespread and global, I don't know. But I know there are people who are experiencing now. And they've experienced it for the last 2,000 years. This beast out of the sea, is, he's, he's puts himself in place of God. And that's also... Important. Again, this goes beyond a secular power or even a pagan power. This is demonic. Someone setting, someone or something setting himself or itself in the place of God, receiving worship. Blaspheming, saying, hey, I I deserve the prerogatives and the privileges that are rightfully only God's. That's what Jesus was crucified for. Who can forgive sins but God alone when Jesus forgave sins? Jesus said, I can work on the Sabbath just like the Father can. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. They killed him for it. It's blasphemy, slander, saying things about God in order to to injure his reputation, in order to kind of run God down, to cause people to think things about God that aren't true. That's what this beast out of the sea does. The beast out of the earth is called the false prophet. That's Revelation 16, 13, explicitly. This is the false prophet. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy and there's a thread through the Bible that says there will be people who have legitimate spiritual power who will attempt to lead the people of God astray. What they're going to do is they're going to perform signs. They're going to perform wonders and miracles. They're going to predict the future, and their predictions are going to be correct. But what they're going to do is they're going to take all of that power and those, and those miracles, they're going to take those fulfilled predictions, and they're going to use that to leverage people away from Jesus, to get people to say, see, let's go follow these other gods. In Deuteronomy 13, we read, God says, I'm sending them because I'm testing your loyalty. Again, everything that happens is happening under his control and his direction. So there's this false prophet, this beast out of the earth. Jesus says that there'll be one's false prophets that outwardly they look like sheep, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. So we have a, this whatever it is that looks like a lamb and sounds like a dragon. Insides and outsides don't match up. And he will perform signs and wonders, but his purpose is to get people to worship the beast out of the sea, not to worship Jesus. He's going to be trying to pull people away from Jesus and towards idolatry, towards the worship of this other beast. And he's going to set up images, whatever that means, maybe statues that would lead us to worship someone other than Jesus. And he's going to have some measure of control even over commercial practices. And it may mean that in order to be faithful to Jesus, your business is going to suffer. It may be difficult to engage in the everyday business and commerce of life. So we've said many times Revelation was written to seven churches, real churches in Turkey. And there's five of them that I think when this was read the first time, they knew exactly who John was talking about. So don't think church like this. Think about more like a small group in your house, that two dozen people maybe. And You've got several of these churches in each city, and so the, this letter is being read, and when it's read in Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira, when they, when they hear this, and they hear about this beast out of the sea, and they hear about this beast out of the earth, I guarantee they're saying, we know who that is. That's Domitian, the emperor. That's the Roman government. That's the beast out of the sea. That's squeezing us and persecuting us. And that beast out of the earth, that's this temple complex. They call it the cult of the emperor, this push to worship the emperor, to offer him incense once a year. Domitian had taken the title Lord and God. That sounds a whole lot like the beast out of the sea. He demanded that citizens of Rome worship him, offer incense in a temple every once a year. That sounds like the beast out of the sea and then he had these priests and this again this whole apparatus that supported that. I think you see that in 5 of the 7 churches. We're going to look particularly at two. You'll see all the scriptures that are up there that word perseverance that's patient endurance that we just read in verse 10. Jesus is commending some of those churches for bearing up well under the difficulty that they're currently experiencing. That word affliction that you see on the screen, that's the word tribulation. Many of these churches were already suffering. Two in particular, I want to point out Smyrna and Pergamum. Smyrna was a rich city. In my mind, I think of East Cobb. That's probably wrong. That's what I think of. But the people, the Christians, they were poor. And not just Kind of working poor, like destitute poor. That's what the word means, extreme poverty. So you have a rich area, and the Christians are extremely poor. Why? Because they're being boycotted. People aren't going to the Christian businesses, they're not using the Christian service providers because the Christians aren't worshiping the emperor. And there's only, maybe there's several hundred of them. We live in the Bible Belt, it's hard for us to imagine being a minority, being in a place where following Jesus actually costs us. But in Smyrna, that was happening to the Christians. They weren't going to Gaskins and using them for surveying and engineering because Brandon wasn't worshiping Caesar. They they wouldn't do it. They weren't engaging in that. They weren't engaging with those people commercially and their families were suffering. So when they read Revelation 13, they're going, I know exactly what that's like. We're living that right now. In Pergamum, there was a temple... To the emperors, first one built in the Roman Empire. It uh, had been built uh, maybe uh, 60 years before Revelation. And Pergamon was a really patriotic city. So everybody went and offered their pinch of incense to Caesar. And if you're a Roman, it wasn't a big deal because you were already worshiping a lot of gods anyway Zeus and Athena and all the others. And so what's a, it's not a big deal to go and worship the emperor. Even if you don't believe he's divine just to, for the sake of his ego, it's not a big deal. But if you're a Christian, it's blasphemy. You can't do that. You can't offer to a man something that's due only to God. You can't worship a man as divine. You can't do that. And so the church in Pergamum, there were ones who were remaining faithful, and one of their guys, Antipas, had already been martyred. He'd been killed because of his unwillingness to worship the emperor. So they read, or it's read to them, Revelation 13, and they're going, we know exactly what that beast is. It's this emperor, and it's this government. It's this temple system. We're being squeezed. And for them, this is not, they're not trying to figure out who's got seven heads and ten horns. They're living during their 42 months. They're experiencing life under the beast. And it's very difficult. And what revelation is to them is this word of encouragement. You just stand firm. You be a faithful witness, and I'll protect your heart. That's the message of revelation. You be a faithful witness, and I'll protect your heart. It's a promise from God. Roman Empire has been dustbin of history for centuries. So what does this look like for us? I would say you can step back and generalize. Beast out of the sea. That's any government. That's intentionally persecuting the church, capital C, attempting to stamp out the gospel and putting itself in place of God. So again, this is not just secular and it's not even pagan. This is, a, this is demonic. This is a government that's saying, hey, we're, we're, we're divine. The things that you think God does, we actually do that. And is actively seeking to persecute the church and stamp out the gospel. And the beast out of the earth is the, it's the, the propaganda system that goes along with that. I'm not a historian. Uh, you, can, you can find somebody and they can trace back, and they can show you, uh, for the last 2,000 years, where you've seen these beasts um, operate. The ones that I've seen most common in my life and in the last 100 years are communism and certain Islamic states. There are people who track. The 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 status of the persecuted church, and year after year, the places where the church is the most persecuted are in communist countries and in certain Islamic countries, and so and you can see how this would work. Like you can think about Stalin, you can think about Mao, you can think about Pol Pot, or you can think about the the um, the Kim Jungs in North Korea. Currently, what they're doing, though, communists are atheists by conviction. And they say the state can provide for you the things that you think you can get from God. And many of those countries, again, if you can go back and you can look at what Mao and Stalin and Pol Pot did, you can see the way they persecuted the church. They attempted to stamp out Christianity, made it illegal to be Christians. And there are certain Islamic states where that's the case right now. To convert is treason. You are risking your life. To become a Christian would be to be ostracized, to be cut off from community, to be cut off from family, to be cut off from commerce. You've got a religious system that says, actually, here's what God looks like. Your your picture of God in Jesus, that's not true. Here's what God really looks like and what it looks like to follow him. And there, there are Christians, churches, capital C, communities of faith that right now are living in their 42 months. This is not future for them. This is not speculative for them. This is their reality. For them to be Christians, they literally are taking their lives and the lives of their family members in their own hands every day. The government, it's not just neutral. It's not even just, maybe on some levels, resistant to Christianity. It's actively seeking to to stamp out the gospel and the church and to replace Jesus with something else. That's not where we live. There's a shift in attitudes Regarding the government in the New Testament, you can see it in Romans 13 to Revelation 13. Paul wrote Romans 13 in maybe 57, 58 A.D. Rome—it's the same government, still the Romans. They still had an emperor. The emperor, when he wrote it, was wasn't a great guy, but at that point, the the empire, the, the government was not hostile to Christianity. Pagan, secular, yes, but not hostile. And so Paul can say, respect the government, submit to it, give honor to where, where honor is due. If you rebel against the government, you're rebelling against God because he put those authorities in place. You fast forward 40 years and John is saying the government is empowered by Satan. Do not submit to it. You resist what they're telling you to do. You don't go worship that emperor, even if it costs you your life. You, be, you patiently endure, you persevere under those difficult circumstances, regardless of the cost. Just 40 years. And the, the difference was the way that the, the government was treating the church. It went from maybe being neutral, un, maybe ignorant about Christianity, so young at that point, just 30 years old, to actively attempting to stamp out the gospel and the emperors aggressively seeking worship and, and to be considered divine. It's not where we live. We don't live. We're not in our 42 months. That's not the American church. We're not persecuted for our faith. We may not like some of the things the government does. We may say that the government is, is, uh, is secularizing in terms of its direction. We may say it's immoral in some ways. We may say it's turning its back on God in some ways. But for none of us are risking our lives for, for, by following Jesus in Marietta, Georgia in 2020. And if Bernie wins or Biden wins or Trump wins, it's not gonna change. We're not, we're not living under the be- any of these beasts. We're not living in our 42 months. And so what does Revelation say to us as ones who are not actively living under persecution? Again, there are churches right now who when they read Revelation, that's their reality. And what Revelation says to them is stand firm. You be a faithful witness. I'm gonna protect your heart. And what it says to us is, open your eyes. Open your eyes. You need to prepare. This very well could be your reality. And even if it never becomes your reality, the expectations are the same, that you would stand firm and be a faithful witness, and God will protect your heart. This unholy trinity still works the same way in our country as it does in other places. We don't have the threat of physical violence and intimidation that you would experience where you have state-sponsored persecution of the church but the unholy trinity of dragon and the beast they still function in many of the same ways as Satan still has the same bag of tricks that he's using we saw last week he no longer is able to accuse us or condemn us before the father but that doesn't stop him from trying to get us to condemn ourselves i'm speaking to the church here that's the way the, that's one of the ways the enemy works that was last week. One of the things that we see uh, in our own life, again, as a church, is this temptation to place some level of loyalty or worship on someone other than Jesus. It's to, it's to put our trust in someone or something other than him. And where we live in Marietta, I would say the two most common are money and ourselves. That's what we're tempted to worship. We don't think of ourselves as, wor- as worshiping money or ourselves, but that's who we trust and maybe we don't trust in money in ourselves completely, but we trust in money and ourself enough that we're not trusting in Jesus completely. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. What money says is the things that Jesus alone can provide, I can actually provide for you. If you get enough of me, then I can give you security. You don't have to worry about anything. I can take care of all of your needs. I can hedge you against any potential disaster. I'll take care of you. You just need to get enough of me. Money says you get enough of me and you can buy the life that you want. You can become the person that you want. You just need more of me. Things that only Jesus can provide. Jesus is the only one who can be with us always. Even if money in some ways can protect our bodies, money can't do anything for our soul. Isaiah 55 says, come to me if you're hungry. Come to me if you're thirsty. Come to me if you don't have any money. I'm gonna give you bread and water that you can't buy. It's free of charge. Our primary identity is as as adopted sons and daughters. And again, that has nothing to do with money. Jesus says, you come to me and I'm going to define who you are. something that money claims to be able to do and ultimately can't ourselves. Many of us, we come to faith because Jesus meets a felt need in our life and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great first step. But unfortunately... There are those of us, we never move past Jesus as a need meter. And there's that, that's a, it's a superficial, it's a shallow, I won't say superficial, it's a shallow relationship. We're, we're interested in God as long as God can help me be successful in my life. However, I'm defining success. I'm fine to walk alongside Jesus as long as we're moving in the same direction, which again is my success. That's very different from following him. Asking him to meet my needs is very different from surrendering myself to him. Treating him basically as a cosmic butler who said, "Where I say this is what I want or this is what I need, would you give it to me?" is very different from saying, regardless of the cost or the consequences, I'm in. I'm in this for the relationship. The benefits are great, but I'm in this for the relationship. For many of us, we trust ourselves our, to, to to a degree. We're still looking to what to our own agenda and our own preferences and our own desires to define the course of our life, versus surrendering and submitting those to Jesus. For many of us, the primary idol that we're pro, that we're tempted to worship is me. It's me, and, and we don't. That's not conscious. It, we never think about it in terms of worship, but when you think about it in terms of surrender. For many of us, we haven't fully surrendered all of ourselves, all of our lives to Jesus. The other thing that you see from the enemy, he's a liar, masquerades as an angel of light. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. Jesus says when the enemy talks, that's his native language. The thing that we forget is how really, he's really good at it. He's a great liar. And sometimes we can get a little complacent with the ways that he deceives us. If you have time, read uh, Genesis 2 and 3 this week. One question and one statement, and he blows, up the, he blows up the world. One question. Did God really say? That's it. Did God really say? It's interesting to me that he goes after Eve. At, God gives Adam the instruction you don't eat from any tree, you can eat from every tree except that one. Don't eat that one. Eve, at that point, hadn't even been created. So Adam's job was to tell Eve, here's what God said, and then Eve's job was to obey. So the enemy goes after Eve, who only has secondhand knowledge. She's going to be the weaker link of the two, right? She didn't hear directly from God. She heard from Adam. Did God really say? How many of us settle for secondhand knowledge? God has given us the, the Bible. We can know firsthand who he is and what he says. And for many of us, we're content to settle with what somebody else said, that God said. And that leaves us open to the enemy twisting the words of God, just like he did with Eve. And then after that, just a blatant contradiction. God's a liar. You're, you can eat, you're not going to die. He just do not want you to be like him. What the enemy's doing is he's trying to get Eve's confidence in God. She's, he's trying to shake Eve's confidence in God relationships are built on trust. If I can shake your confidence in God, then eventually the relationship begins to falter as well. One question and one statement. He's really good at lying. And for many of us, we leave ourselves open to deception because we don't spend time with Jesus. Revelation's a broken record. It says the same thing over and over again. Be with him in order to develop deep roots in him so that you can stand firm in him regardless of the consequences. That's all it says to the church, just over and over in different ways. That's what it's saying. But for many of us, just that, that one step, be with him. It's, just, it's not there on a consistent basis. Coronavirus. I don't care. When, like You do what you want. Wash your hands, do the foot shake. Whatever. Don't go out. No, I don't care what you do. It matters a ton why you're doing it, though. The what is less important than the why. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason, and it's still sin. God looks at our hearts. And for some of us, we're being driven by fear. We're not being led by the Holy Spirit. We're spending 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour or more consuming hysteria around this real disease. We're drinking deeply from those fountains and we're sipping from the fountain of Jesus. Three minutes versus 45 minutes. And then we wonder why am I anxious? Why am I afraid? Those things are designed to make you anxious and afraid. We don't have, there, we're not monks. You can't spend 18 hours a day alone with God. That's not what I'm saying. Remember those paddle balls you had when you were a kid? You hit it and the ball bounces. For some of us, our tether is so long. We go a long, long way out before we bounce back to Jesus. You want to shorten the tether. Spending time with him so that when you're not consciously with him, when you hear things and when you experience things, it doesn't take you long to bounce back and to get his perspective to remember some of the things that you know to be true, not because somebody else told you they were true, but because you've ingested them yourself. That's true. It's not condemnation. It's just the reality for us. Some of, we make ourselves easy targets sometimes. We're ripe for deception. One, because we haven't spent time really getting to know Jesus. there are no shortcuts. You know how to do that. There are no shortcuts. But as you get to know him, then his perfect love for you will begin to cast out fear. When you hear things, your first response won't be, oh my gosh, what do I need to do about it? It'll be, all right, God, what, what do I need to do about this, Lord? Like what's, what's a faithful response to this? When your emotions start running like crazy, your first thought won't be man I need a drink to calm down it'll be god what what's going on like what is what's going on with me i need your peace would you fill me with your peace again it, it, again it's not you're you're none of as far as i know none of you are going to become monks and that's not the solution for us. It's not to completely withdraw from the world. It's not to bury our head in the sand so we don't know what's going on. It's to see all of those things through the lens of who Jesus is. And as we spend time with, 666 won't matter to you anymore. You won't care because you'll recognize the phony when he comes. The mark of the beast won't matter to you anymore because you'll recognize the the schemes and the attacks of the enemy as they come. And they won't throw you off. Not because you're super confident in your own righteousness or even your own commitment to the Lord. But because you've come to know Him to, to such a degree that you're confident. He's going to keep you safe. Maybe not physically. But He's going to keep you safe. He's going to guard your heart. Because that's what He's promised to do. Let's pray. I want you to close your eyes. We're not going to do ministry because it's already 1245. So we're... I'm gonna trust the Lord to work in each one of your hearts right now. This is what I want you to do without. I don't want you to feel stupid. I don't want you to feel immature. I certainly don't want you to feel condemned. That's all the enemy. I want you to just be really honest. Am I being driven by fear right now in some area of my life? Maybe it's about the coronavirus. Maybe it's about your kids. Maybe it's about your health. Maybe it's about your business. Are you being driven by fear? And if you are, just confess that to the Lord. God, I confess, Satan is eaten my lunch in this area of my life. I know, and you may know in your mind, things that are true, but those truths have not penetrated to the core of who you are yet. They're not shaping your responses to the data that you're receiving. So maybe pray something like this, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide me into the full truth of who Jesus is. I want to know in a way that I can understand this perfect love that casts out fear. I want to know in a way that I can understand this peace that passes all understanding. I want to get that somehow How do I understand peace that passes understanding? God, I want to experience that in my life. I confess, and you fill in the blanks. These are the areas where I'm prone to being deceived. These are the situations where I'm really tempted to trust in myself or money or you fill in the blank. And God, when those situations arise, I want to turn towards you, not towards those other things. I want to know what it is to lean fully upon you. And that's scary for me to say. But I want to know what that, I want to know that reality. I want to trust you enough that I can put the full weight of my life upon you. Holy Spirit, I pray for each person in this room, man, woman, students, each one of us, that we would all know your perfect love in our hearts to such an extent that it would drive out fear, that we would recognize the schemes of the enemy to steal and kill and destroy in our life, and we would not cooperate with him, we would not take the bait. God, I pray for those who are intimidated by the roar of that lion. Would you remind him that he's been defanged? And that even if he hurts their body, he can never touch their soul. God, I pray that as we go this afternoon, that we would do so confidently in our identity as sons and daughters, and all that that means, knowing the great love and delight that you have for us, filled with your Spirit who empowers us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.